I'll be another face to, uh, to say good morning and welcome to you. My name is Matt Luloyan, uh, and if we've not met before, I, I get to serve as the pastor here of Liberty Church. It's a privilege to have you with us, as Nate said at the beginning of our service, whether you find yourself um, excited to be here because you, you want to be someone who worships Jesus, um, or you're just considering even what, what is Christianity about, just grateful uh, to have you with us today. We, uh, we get the, the great opportunity to start a new series and a new book today, the book of Jonah. Uh, and so you saw probably on your bulletin cover when you came in, uh, the series title is called Running from God, and there's this really um, well done, and I, and I appreciate art, most especially because I'm terrible at it myself, uh, a really well done charcoal on, uh, on paper uh, piece of artwork. On the inside of your bulletin there, it says a little bit of information about that. It was done by a member of Liberty Church East, uh, the church that planted us here in Harrisburg several years back. Uh, he's a very talented artist. And he was doing a series uh, of pieces um, based on uh, Herman Melville's work, Moby Dick. So he was already used to drawing whales and boats. And so we said, hey, we're doing a series in Jonah. Would you think about adding one to, to your series that we could use for our, uh, for our bulletin covers and things like that? So that's the, the story of the artwork uh, that you find on your worship guide this morning. So if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to uh, the book of Jonah. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that you find under your seat or a seat nearby... Uh, page 774 uh, is where you will find uh, the book of Jonah. Jonah is, uh, is one of the books in our Old Testament scriptures as part of the minor prophets. And my bet is for many of us in the room this morning, it's the only minor prophet that if someone were to ask you, hey, what's that book about? You would have like a chance or a hope of giving them some idea of what, of what it's about. Uh, a lot of us in the room have some background in the church, whether it's been recent or it's been a long time ago. Uh, whether you grew up in the church, whether you uh, didn't grow up in the church and then checked out the church at some point in your life. So because of that, uh, Jonah, to, us, to many of us, is familiar. At least parts of the story are familiar, right? Most specifically, the part of the story where Jonah gets swallowed up by this huge whale, this, this great fish, as it's described. But despite its familiarity, actually, I would argue because of its familiarity, Jonah is a book where I think we're particularly prone to miss the point, and to miss the depth and the richness that's there. Case in point, um, I once saw a mural of Jonah painted in a children's ministry wing of a church uh, that I was at, and uh, the picture was like this entire wall of this children's ministry wing, and it was a picture of this big fish that had come up near the beach, near the shore, and it opened its mouth, and then there, small, kind of in the opening of its mouth, was, was a picture of Jonah standing triumphantly, like hoisting the mouth of the fish open like this. Right? That was the picture of the mural of, of the story of Jonah. It's an impression, I think, that we carry around uh, about that's the story of Jonah. Jonah like victoriously emerges from the belly of the, of the fish after several days. Okay, a little preview about where we're going to be going in the series. That is not, that is not the message of the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is not the hero of this story. Not even close. Jonah is an anti-hero. And in many ways, he does and is exactly the opposite of what a prophet of God is meant to do and and be. So what's Jonah really about? There's an evangelist named George Campbell Morgan who said it this way around the turn of the 20th century. He said this, Men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And that's what Jonah is really about a powerful and a redemptive God who was going to intervene in nature, who was going to intervene in the human hearts to pursue and to rescue 
those who rebel, those who run. So if, if there were a, a competition for the worst prophet to get a book of the Bible named after them, Jonah would certainly be a finalist in, in the running for that. Uh, but you know what? And here's what I hope we see as we go through this series together. You know what? Praise God for that. Because it's going to make his life and his experience and his mistakes very relevant and very relatable to our own. We have this tendency to, to read about the men and women in Scripture and to put them on some kind of pedestal. Uh, we, we look at what they accomplish. We look at the things that they do. We look how God works through them in their lives. And we look at that as being something completely unattainable, unreachable for us. So what we do then is we try to emulate their actions, which in many cases is not a bad thing, except that we forget to see how they've been acted upon by a great God. And in turn, then, we become consumed by trying to just do a lot of good things for God. And we never see or we always miss the, the, the great things that God has done for us, the things that we could never do on our own. The great thing about Jonah, though, is that he sets the bar so low that it becomes painfully obvious. God has, has to be uh, the hero of the story because there's not another hero to be found. So today we're looking at Jonah attempting to flee from God's presence. And as we get into the text here in just a minute or two, uh, my hope is that we would see this, that, that this is us. All right, this is you and me. Each of us has followed this bad example of Jonah trying to run from the presence of God. And for most of us, it's going to be a lot more subtle than what we read about Jonah. Uh, most of us didn't get on like a plane or a ship for the other side of the world trying to escape God. But really, the, the nature of sin itself is that we hide and that we flee from God. So Adam and Eve, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, they eat fruit from the forbidden tree. And then what do they do? They clothe themselves, they cover themselves up, and then they hide. They hide from God. When God acts in our lives, there's something that is simultaneously compelling and terrifying about that. Right? We, we want God to work in our lives, and at the very same minute, we don't want him to work in our lives. And the life and the story of Jonah really gives voice, gives a picture to that part of us that doesn't want God to show up and work in our lives. It depicts the part of us that wants to hide, that wants to flee when God shows up on the scene and is going to work powerfully. So as we study Jonah together over these next few weeks, uh, I just invite you from the get-go, let's, let's wrestle honestly with that. Uh, let's wrestle with how we're prone in our lives to run from God. And for some of you, all it takes is to walk in here and be handed a bulletin this morning, the title of which says, Running from God, and you're already like, wow, okay, that's me. I've been running from God, maybe for a really long time. For others of us, it's going to be a lot harder to see the ways that we run from God. One of the great lies is that, is that we can be good and moral people, when in reality, being good and moral people is just another form of running from God. If we're just trying to, in our own efforts, and our own self-will, stay, stay out of the place where he will show up and work powerfully in our lives. Some of us run without any claim that we're trying to follow God in the first place. That might be you this morning. You might be here. You're not a Christian. You don't consider yourself to be a Christian. So why would you even want to run after God or with God? You're, you're just running away from him. Others of us, like Jonah, claim to represent the very God that we run from. For all of us, the hope of Jonah is this. Not that Jonah is a good man who gets his act together, but that God is a great God who pursues rebels. 
So let's jump in. We're going to read the first six verses of Jonah chapter 1 today. You can follow along with me as I read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we see not just good examples of people who faithfully follow you, but bad examples of those who run. Because as much as we want to be the people who are faithful, we find in reality and in practice much more often that we are the ones who run. And so we need you to be the great God that you reveal yourself to be in this book, specifically and in all of Scripture, a God who runs after we who run. So help us as we begin this study together, as we walk through these verses and these chapters in the coming weeks, help us to see our own story and the story of Jonah. Help us to be those who repent of that. Help us to be those who who see you running after us. Let me pray that in your name. Amen. So two things uh, we'll look at from these six verses this morning. First, we'll look at the one who runs away, and then we'll look at the God who runs after. The one who runs away, the God who runs after. So first, let's talk about the one who runs away. Uh, The book of Jonah begins... Uh, the way you would probably expect a prophetic book to begin. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Prophets uh, are those through whom God speaks. Uh, The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, it's a sacred thing. It is how God reveals himself in a very direct and very special way to his people. And so prophets, really especially in the Old Testament, but really throughout, prophets are those who are bearers of that revelation from God. Who's Jonah? He's referenced really only one other time in Scripture outside of of this book. And that comes in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. In that chapter, in 2 Kings 14, we find out that Jonah serves as a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. So a really brief history lesson there. Um, King David, greatest king of Israel, his son Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom divides And there are the the ten tribes that make up the northern kingdom of Israel. There's the two tribes that make up the southern kingdom of Judah. And when we read the accounts of these two different kingdoms, we find that while there's a mixture of good and bad kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the northern kingdom of Israel, every single king does what is evil in the sight of God. All the accounts about those kings, there's there's this little refrain that comes after their name. And it says, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So it's an apostate kingdom led by apostate kings. They they create their own uh, idolatrous form of worship, and they war against the southern kingdom. They do all kinds of things to rebel and reject the God 
that they claim to represent. The first interaction we have with Jonah then, the, the, really the only other one outside of this book, is Jonah prophesying not against, but in favor of that northern kingdom. Other Old Testament prophets, at least the, the faithful ones, men like Amos and Hosea, they speak, when they prophesy about the northern kingdom, it's always about how they're going to be destroyed because of the sins that they are committing. Jonah, when we read about him in 2 Kings 14, he tells King Jeroboam II that the northern kingdom is going to expand its borders under his reign. They're going to thrive, they're going to expand during King Jeroboam II's reign. And you know what? That actually happens. He's right. It does. Right? So even though this kingdom is apostate, even though it's led by apostate kings, God still works through them, sometimes giving them a lot of favor in the geopolitical landscape of the, of the ancient Near East. But what we learn from that is that Jonah is not your stereotypical prophet. Right? It's complicated. Jonah's life and his ministry is complicated. He's not the typical prophet condemning the northern kingdom. He is faithful to deliver the message that God has given him, but it's one of the only pro-northern kingdom messages ever revealed from a prophet to them. So just uh, as each of our stories and each of our backgrounds give context to help us understand a little bit more about who we are, perhaps this sheds a little bit of light on the complexity that we'll see emerge from Jonah and the inconsistencies that we'll see emerge from Jonah in the verses that follow. Because in this book of Jonah, no sooner do we read his name than we f- and find out that he's a prophet, than we watch him flat out reject and run from the call of God. All right, God shows up, speaks to Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He says, arise. What does Jonah do? He goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the bowels of the ship. God says, go to Nineveh. Uh, which from where he was is about 500 miles to the northeast. Jonah instead gets on a boat headed to Tarshish. And and we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but it's somewhere in the farthest reaches of the Mediterranean Sea, the the farthest westernmost reaches of the known world at that time. So it's the exact opposite direction that God has called him to go. Why does he run? We actually find out a little bit more about that as the story unfolds, and we'll get to that in later weeks. But for now, I just want to see uh, us to see a couple things that we can learn about running from God through Jonah's example through these opening, these opening verses. For one, you can run from God in different ways, very different ways. The two general examples that we encounter right from the get-go here, pagans run and prophets run. Pagans run and prophets run. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, call out against the the people of Nineveh because the evil of Nineveh has come up to God. That's a pagan kind of running, right? Nineveh uh, is one of the biggest cities of the Assyrian people. Uh, Its ruins actually are uh, today, they're across the Tigris River from Mosul, the city in Iraq, uh, in present-day Iraq. That territory actually is is currently and has been for the last couple years controlled by ISIS, uh, Nineveh was actually in the news this week. There are reports that ISIS is actually destroying some of the ruins of Nineveh uh, as, we, as we speak. Uh, back to this time. Ultimately, uh, Assyria is ultimately going to c- become the world power that destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. They're the ones that God's going to raise up into power that destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. But at this time that Jonah's prophesying, uh, Assyria is still a growing power. They're not quite at the height of their power yet. So they're not an immediate threat to Israel. 
They are, however, not a friendly nation either. Uh, they're ruthless people. They're, they're enemies of Israel. They worship other gods. They participate in the kinds of uh, pagan rituals that go along with worshiping deities in the ancient Near East. But it's not just pagans who run from God, right? That might be the stereotypical view we have in mind. Well, who runs from God? Well, people who reject him outright and, and pagans and people who don't even claim to worship him. What we learn from Jonah right away, prophets run too. And for us, the parallel is this. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Okay, that's one way to run from God, to not even claim to know him, to not even claim to, to follow him. But likewise, you might be a Christian. You might be someone who says, yes, I follow Jesus. Uh, and you might just as well be running from God. There are ways that I run from God. And maybe some of these will resonate with you. Um, when I don't have the hard conversation that I'm called to have, that can be a form of running from God. When I don't love those who are particularly difficult for me to love for whatever reason, that's me running from God. When I choose comfort over faithfulness to Jesus, that's a way that I can run from God. I run from God when I pay no attention to the poor and the fatherless and the marginalized people of this world that God has called me to care about and to love. So pagans run and prophets run. It's not just those who aren't Christians. It's not just those who are atheists or agnostics or whatever that run from God. The other thing to see from these opening verses is that running from God is completely irrational and inconsistent. It's completely irrational, completely inconsistent. What does Jonah think he's going to accomplish by running? As a prophet, he's, he's a bearer of the word of, lo- of the Lord. He's spoken revelations, revelations from God over kings and over kingdoms that have come to pass. He's spoken the word of the Lord that have come to pass on that scale. And yet, he rejects that very same word of the Lord when it's spoken over him in his own life. All right, that is a huge inconsistency for Jonah. Down in verse 9, which we'll look at more next week, Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and made the, the dry land. So Jonah is part of the people of God, and he's a prophet among them, no less. Prophets are people who say things like the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, who says this, Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So Jonah believes this. He believes that that the God he serves made the sea, And yet he decides to flee the presence of God. He's going to escape God in his mind via the very sea that God created. It makes absolutely no sense. But running from God is never rational. It's never rational. Sin and and disobedience to God, rejection of God, none of that is rational. That's insanity when we do that. It's just that when we don't want to do something, we, we don't want to do something. And we find out all of a sudden that we don't really want to live in light of the truth that we claim to believe, if we're those who believe it, or we'll reject what, we, what can be known about God from our surroundings or from creation because we just want to do what we want to do. And we run away from God, and we run directly into irrational and inconsistent undertakings. That's not all that's going on, though, in these opening verses of Jonah He's not the only one we come to find running in these verses. 
See, Jonah is going to run away. What we also see here is that there is a God who runs after him. And so second, let's talk about the God who runs after. If I had three letters to explain the good news of God's work in history, God's work in the world, I don't know that that you or I could do any better than the word but. B-U-T. God has created everything, but it's been corrupted through our sin. And yet, man has sinned, but God saves. That is the... That is the simplified but beautiful version of the story of God's work in the world. God has created, man has corrupted, man has sinned, God has saved. Jonah went toward Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord, verse 4, but the Lord. And that, that is the interrupting, intervening pursuit of God after the one who runs away. Jonah's going to run from God, but God's going to run after him. And I want us to see a few things about God's pursuit of Jonah, which really then help us understand how God pursues us when we run. So for one, um, God doesn't immediately stop Jonah from fleeing. He doesn't immediately stop him. Yet God calls Jonah. Jonah doesn't say anything with his words. He votes with his feet, just gets up and starts going. There are a hundred things or more that God could do to stop him before he ever gets on the boat. Why doesn't God rebuke Jonah at the first disobedient step? Why doesn't God bring another prophet alongside him to stop him in his tracks? Why doesn't God have him get robbed on the road to Joppa so he doesn't even have money anymore to be able to pay the ship fare? Or why doesn't he get sick? Or why doesn't he break a leg on the road to Joppa? Or why does he make it so that when he gets to the the port, there aren't any westbound ships available, and there's only eastbound ships, and he's going to have to go anyway toward where God called him? Okay, we don't know. We don't know, and honestly, we don't even know enough to start speculating about why that might be. We just know that for whatever reason, God allows Jonah to run for a while before he intervenes. And the same thing is often true in our lives. You know those moments where God is silent passive or absent in our experience? When you struggle to find like a single evidence that God is actually active and working in you or around you. It feels like God is distant in those moments. Maybe it feels like God doesn't even really care. He's just apathetic toward you. What we see in Jonah, what the beauty of Jonah does is allow us to zoom out and see this happening and unfolding in someone else's experience. And what we learn is that regardless of what the experience feels like in a moment, or even if we're getting away with running for a period of time, God is not absent from that. He's not absent from the things that are happening around you and in you. He might, for whatever reason, and reasons we probably will never know, be waiting for a specific moment. And and, and waiting for a moment to intervene where you will be more receptive to it for some reason. Or able to perceive it at all, maybe. In a way that maybe you wouldn't if he intervened immediately. So for for some of us in the room, perhaps you are running from God right now. And maybe you've even done kind of the thing where you challenge God to come after you. You know, God, if you're real, then show yourself to me. Do something, right? You're having like the Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump moment. Anyone seen that movie? He... It's a really powerful scene. He climbs to the top of the mast during a lightning storm. He's on a ship. It's all ships. The moments with God all come with ships and water. 
he climbs to the top of this mass during a lightning storm, and he has a shouting match with God. Like, God, come and get me. It's you and me. It's a showdown, and you're never going to take me. Why doesn't God always immediately respond to that? Either by striking him dead or by, you know, completely changing his life in that moment. Why doesn't God respond to that? Well, we don't know. We don't know. But maybe in your life, if you're having a moment like that, maybe God is going to let you experience a little bit more of what it feels like to run, to be distant from him, to try to get away, so that you'll become utterly desperate for his intervention when it does come. In Jonah's case, God does intervene. He will intervene, and we read that here. How does he do that, though? He sends a storm. He sends a huge storm. And that teaches us another important thing about how God runs after those who run away from him. One of the biggest misconceptions, one of the biggest lies about Christianity, and it's a misconception that's often perpetuated and taught by Christians themselves, well-meaning as they might be, is that when God intervenes in your life, it's through things that feel good. It's through things that bring joy. It's by sparing you from pain and suffering. And God does absolutely intervene in your life through all of those things. There are probably a thousand instances in my life I'm not even aware of where God has spared me from pain and suffering. That's him intervening in my life and brought joy and brought good things to my life. But sometimes he intervenes and it's violent. And it's violent. Specifically, sometimes he intervenes through pain and suffering. Sometimes the worst thing that God could do, sometimes the least loving thing that God could do is to spare you from the pain and suffering that in the end will open your eyes and open your ears and open your heart to him. So how does God track us down when we run from him? Well, it's very often through storms. It's through circumstances that disequilibriate us. It's through chaos it's through suffering. It's, it's when we shipwreck our lives in some way. If you find yourself today or, or, or when you find yourself in one of those things someday, again, I encourage you, I implore you, don't think of God as being absent from that. It's so, so often God runs after and catches up to and overtakes, so to speak, in the hospital beds and in the funeral homes and in the rehab centers and in the divorce courts and in the prison cells of this world. That is God running after the one who runs away. The last thing we learn about God's pursuit, just from these initial few verses, is that it comes through unlikely sources. So this is a, a contrast that appears multiple times over the book of Jonah. But though he's a prophet, right, he's a prophet, he's a bearer of the revelation of God, Jonah is actually the least godly character in this story. And so in the midst of this huge storm that's threatening to kill everybody on board this ship, it's the pagan sailors calling Jonah to prayer rather than the other way around. And we'll see next week that the sailors actually, they have functionally more of a fear and awe and reverence of God than Jonah does. And it's this pagan captain, the ship captain, who repeats God's call to arise when Jonah has just been going down and going down. So God's pursuit doesn't always come through the expected places, the expected sources. An an example of that from my own life this week, just on Friday, uh, I heard a guy speak who's not a Christian. And as I heard him speak, I heard him um, just share about his life and philosophize a little bit about life and religion and spirituality. 
Um, there are a handful of things that he said with which I would take strong exception. I would, I would disagree with some of the ways he um, puts pieces together about how the world works and our purpose in the world and things like that. At the same time, oh my goodness, there was a ton of rich truth in what this man shared. Particularly truth about treating people as people. Uh, treating his employees as people. Treating his clients as people. Treating his family and friends as people. And I got the impression from listening to him that his organization, the organization that he runs, probably does a really good job caring for people, being hospitable, being welcoming to people, probably even better than we do as a church sometimes. And definitely better than Christians at large do throughout history and in the present day. Right, so, though, so though I wouldn't like, encourage someone to go sit with that guy and learn theology from him directly, a lot of truth comes out of sources that you would not expect it to come from. Don't miss God pursuing you, speaking through unlikely, unexpected sources. Okay, what do we learn from these opening lines of Jonah? Well, both pagans and prophets run from God. They both run from God. And in Jonah, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, we're going to see repentance from an entire city filled with enemy people. It's this massive, huge-scale, redemptive work of God. But surprisingly few words of this book are devoted to it. The overwhelming focus of this book is on a disobedient, disillusioned, self-righteous, arrogant, unmerciful prophet of God who needs the hardness of his own heart ripped out so that he might experience the compassion of the God he represents. Jonah seeks to run God runs after. So if you find yourself running today, maybe more accurately, wherever you find yourself running today, here's my question for you. Where are you hoping to go? Where are you hoping to go? Where have you convinced yourself that you'll be successful to flee, to hide? The psalmist in Psalm 139 is so helpful here because probably wrestling with his own proclivity to run, he comes to this realization there's nowhere he can go. There's nowhere he can go to truly flee the presence of God. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, how relevant is that for Jonah? You are there. So if Jonah even had made it on this boat without a storm all the way to Tarshish, let's say he gets to where he is going, There, the psalmist says, the hand of the Lord would lead him. The hand of God would hold him. We cannot escape the presence of God. And I would even say to you this morning, wherever you find yourself, your your presence in this room this morning is maybe one of several evidences of, of a God who is present in your life and who is at work pursuing you even as you run. A little more than 100 years ago, uh, a poet named Francis Thompson penned a work called The Hound of Heaven. Commenting on this poem, a, a different author writes this. He says, The name is strange. It startles one at first. It is so bold, so new, so fearless. It does not attract, rather the reverse. But when one reads the poem, this strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and and imperturbed pace, 
so does God follow the fleeing soul by His divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn to Him alone in that never-ending pursuit. The poem itself is 182 lines long. If you're not familiar with poetry, that's a long poem. So I'm going to let you look it up uh, and read it on your own as you're interested in that. But because Jonah is such an example of this, uh, let me just read the first few lines of The Hound of Heaven for us, and then we'll close. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him an underrunning laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. That's where you see in Jonah, God intervene and run after. All things betrayest Jonah who betrayest God. Nature doesn't work. The ship doesn't work. Fleeing doesn't work. Why? Because, friends, this is the God who runs after. This is the hound of heaven. And through the the relatable and relevant bad example of one prophet, our eyes then become even more fixed in anticipation of another prophet, a better prophet who is to come, namely Jesus Christ. And where Jonah the prophet runs away, Jesus the prophet, the word of God made flesh, the, the revelation of God in its highest and purest form, embodies that mission of God to run after those who run. And Jesus enters into the world pursuing us. So if ever there is a doubt about the length to which God is willing or able to go when we run away, the the length, uh, the the ability to, to run after us as we run, may we look to the cross, may we look to the empty tomb of Jesus. Because we might be able to run hard and fast and far, but God has moved heaven and earth He has dealt the death blow to sin and death themselves in order to run harder and faster and further after us. So pagan or prophet, when you find yourself running away, may our great God, may this hound of heaven make himself known to you as the one who is running after. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, you have made us and you have set eternity in our hearts. There is a longing in our hearts to know you and be known by you. And yet we confess, rather than step into that in faithfulness, we are those who are prone to run, prone to wander. We are those who are terrified of your intervention in our life. As much as we want it, we're also terrified of it. And so we rejoice this morning that you are a God who does not let us run by ourselves, but runs after us and pursues and overtakes us. And as we find ourselves running this morning, I pray for each of us who finds ourselves running this morning, 
be it completely away from you, never having claimed to have known you at all, or we in the room who do claim to know and worship you but are just resisting you and, and running from you in some aspect of our lives, would you come after us? Would you be this hound of heaven? And in our moments of sanity, in our moments of clarity, would we cry out to you to come after us, even though we're going to resist it? even though we're going to hate it when it comes, even though it's going to feel like a storm and it's not going to feel like joy and good things, it's going to, it's going to be a rough experience. Would you come after us? We ask that in our sane moments because we know we need you to pursue us. And thank you, Jesus, that you have pursued us to the point of your own death. And as we come to this table this morning, may we give up running away And may we instead come to the table that shows how you have run after us. We pray this in your name. Amen.